firstly, thanks for thanks for coming out uh, this morning to hear this talk on a really amazing piece of music uh, and a really important piece of music in the course of musical history. Uh, firstly, the reason I'm giving the talk is because the Cathedral Concert Series is featuring this piece uh, in April. So the last Sunday of Lent, April 6th. Come on in. Okay. Come on in. Um, the last uh, Sunday in April, uh, I'm sorry, the first Sunday in April, last Sunday of Lent, April 6th, 3 o'clock, and it's a guest choir, the Georgia Tech Chamber Choir, who's conducted by Jerry Ulrich. Now, um, you might remember that, um, I'm not quite sure what year it was, 2011 perhaps, that they were here performing the Bach B minor mass. And uh, the uh, that was, I think, of, it's gone down in history as being an amazing performance and a really uh, sort of monumental piece of music. Um, and this, this is really following suit in many respects. Um, and uh, it really is, the, the Vespers, that is, is considered to be the, the most monumental and largest scale work before any of the great Bach oratorios or the Passions or the B minor Mass, certainly. Uh, the famous conductor, John Elliott Gardner, uh, who was uh, very much responsible for the resurrection of this piece from a performance standpoint, said this, the Monteverdi Vespers is undoubtedly the richest and most substantial single work of church music prior to Bach's passions. To experience it either as a performer or as a listener is a major event, and there must be many who have been bowled over by the work on first hearing. Now, Monteverdi was a revolutionary in many senses, and this very work itself was a bold and unique statement, unlike anything before it in sacred music. Uh, for example, it's, it's written in places for up to 10 different voice parts. Uh, it uses instrumentation that had been never s seen before in, in any sort of sacred <coughs> music, and it also requires incredibly skilled musicians. We're talking light years beyond any of the motets of Palestrina or masses uh, uh, from that era. Just the difficulty of this work can't be underestimated at all, the technical difficulty. The other intriguing thing about this work and why it, it is rather popular is because to this day it really remains quite a mystery. Uh, there are so many questions surrounding the music, not only from the music within itself, but historically, its context, why Monteverdi wrote it. Uh, and the first, the first real question on the piece is, why was it composed and for what purpose? And we're going to talk about that later. Another uh, issue is the work is two hours long from start to finish. And was it really meant for liturgical use? Or was it an artistic unity, um, just uh, supposed to be used for concert or uh, other purpose? There's really no record of the work's first performance, so we don't have any, any sort of uh, indication of what it was used for the first time. And there are all sorts of theories about that. And then there are all sorts of musical questions that pertain to things like use of instruments, what pitch it should be at, and some transposition of the movements. That's that's way technical. We're not going to talk so much about that today. Um, and another reason for its popularity is that the Vespers recently celebrated its 400th birthday. It was composed in 1610, published in 1610, I should say. And um, 
2010 saw a, a worldwide revitalization of, of performances of the piece. Now, entire books have been written about this one work. And I'm not going to stand here and pretend to know everything about it. I certainly don't. I am not an expert on the piece. I've only had the pleasure and privilege of performing it once in my life, playing Continuo for it in 2010 for one of those many performances. And it was definitely one of the uh, musical highlights, I would say, in, in my life of being able to participate in that. And, and hopefully if you're able to come on, on April 6th, you're going to see what kind of scale and proportion this is. I mean, it's just, it's unimaginable. Um, so this lecture is not even going to begin to crack the surface. But what I want to do, our best uh, use of time together, will be to discuss a few things. Firstly, who was Monteverdi? Why was he important in the course of musical history? What Vespers is as a liturgical entity? And how Monteverdi used it as a canvas for creating one of the greatest choral masterpieces of all time. And then we're going to talk about the somewhat odd selection of the texts within uh, the work and why he may have used them and how the music serves the text. This is a very important thing when we're talking about Monteverdi. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. But before that, let's just give a quick Reader's Digest rundown of Monteverdi. He was born in, that is wrong, he was born in Cremona <laughs> in 1567. He worked in Mantua. Um, and he was the son of a chemist who practiced medicine and amateur surgery. <laughs> he sang in the Cremona Cathedral as a boy, and he learned music from the cathedral's choir master. He was educated at the University of Cremona. And his first published work was a collection of sacred motets that he wrote in 1582. There were a few other sacred things that followed in uh, 1583. But after this, he really gained notoriety as a composer through his writing of madrigals, which are secular music. We're going to talk about that in just a second. He then worked for the court in Mantua, um, and he eventually became the court conductor. Uh, and it, he worked for a, a man named Vincenzo Gonzaga, who was his main sponsor. He was married in 1599, and his wife was a, uh, a, a very famous soprano of the time, but she sadly died eight years later in 1607, just after he wrote his very famous opera, L'Orfeo, um, which was groundbreaking in and of itself. Uh, I'd say most people who go to music school, if they remember one opera from the 17th century, they'll remember this one, uh, because it was so, so uh, uh, monumental. Um, and then, um, all of a sudden, in 1610, we see a resurgence of sacred music in Monteverdi. Um, and, and some other sacred works that accompanied that publication, which we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, he then moved to Venice in 1613 to be Maestro di Capella of St. Mark's in Venice, San Marco. Um, and he remained there for the rest of his life. He actually became a Catholic priest in 1632, and he continued to write music. And a year before he died in 1642, he, um, he wrote his second most famous uh, opera, The Coronation of Popea. And uh, one year later, in 1643, he died in Venice, and he's buried in the uh, Basilica di Santa Maria Gloriosa dei Frari in Venice. And I have a, um, I have a story about this. Uh, I was in Venice in 2009 uh, by myself, just 
sort of um, having having a solo vacation, if you will, and uh, was on a sort of musical pilgrimage as well. And I went searching for Monteverdi's grave in this really beautiful but off-the-beaten-path church in Venice. Uh, and I had to look and look and look. There were no maps. I think it was deliberate, actually. They just didn't want people congregating in one spot. It was sort of a journey. You had to go search out for it. And then I was just off in one little side altar area of the the church all the way to the left. It's on. The, if you ever go there, it's on the front, towards the front, all the way to the left. And what you don't see in this picture is there's a music stand that has a facsimile, that's that's a copy, basically, of the manuscript, the, not the manuscript, the first publication of the Monteverdi Vespers is right there. And then I just sort of happened upon this uh, grave, and um, I had just uh, started to get ready to perform the Vespers um, a year later, and it was just, it was a very emotional moment for me, just sort of happening upon, there. there's one of the greatest composers that ever lived right there. Um, so it's re really very moving, and you always see flowers and um, things on his grave. Um, so, yes. So he was married. His wife died. Died, and then some years later he became a Catholic priest. Yes. And then published an opera. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Those, that wasn't his only opera, but I mean, that's just sort of, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a sort of crazy, strange life. They had two sons as well. Uh, I'll talk about that in a little bit, too. Remember, I was talking about madrigals, these secular uh, pieces. Um, and Monteverdi revolutionized madrigal writing in the 17th century. That's my email. Sorry about that. Um, and... Like I said, after his first attempt at uh, sacred music, he decided to devote his compositional energies to secular madrigals. Um, and these were sort of the pop music of the Italian courts, not of the folk, but of the, of the courts, certainly. And uh, it, very sophisticated pieces. Um, but um, the shift that Monteverdi made was that before his time, these were mainly unaccompanied uh, vocal pieces uh, for like say four to five parts, five parts being a very common uh, scoring for that, five different voices singing, and he shifted it to just duets that were being accompanied by instruments, and they were very, very uh, complicated. But another, perhaps more important innovation that he made was this idea of the two practices, the prima pratica and the seconda pratica, the first practice and the second practice. And this has everything to do with text, and this is the important bit that we really want to pay attention to. I'm going to read something for you. Um, in the 17th century, uh, there was a plurality of musical text setting that was going on. And in Monteverdi's fifth book of madrigals in 1605, he made this distinction. Uh, he talks about the, the first practice, which was a style of vocal polyphony codified by people like Zarlino and Palestrina. Um, and uh, these were you know, Italian Renaissance composers and theorists, and they contributed a lot to counterpoint. Counterpoint being a way of voices to come in at different points, um, yet following a set of rules that made the, the music sound as harmonious to the ear as possible. It's, it's a lot more complicated than that, but I've, that's, that's sort of the, the easiest way I can explain it. Uh, and Palestrina's music, you know, if you think of a piece like Siku Cervus, which you've heard the choir sing before, it's a very um, harmonically simple piece, really does, um, you can understand the text, but it doesn't do a whole lot to really paint the text. I mean, it does a little, but not a whole lot. Um, 
And the main thing about this first practice is that the text was servant to the music. In other words, these rules of counterpoint were so important that it didn't matter what the text was saying. As long as the rules of the counterpoint were being adhered to, all was well. But then Monteverdi and some of his contemporaries came in and said, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense. Why should the text be servant to the music? It, shouldn't, it should really be the other way around. And that way, if we break some of the rules of counterpoint, we can therefore uh, use the music to paint the text, breaking some of the rules of the counterpoint to create these very awkward intervals to um, illustrate sadness or pain or joy, or um, dissonances in the music, things like that, R crunches. Sometimes you hear a piece that really crunches. And that's, that's all to convey what the text is saying. That's why in the leaflets, I, it, we take so much time to make sure you have the text, even when we sing something in a foreign language, so that you can hear what, what the music is, tr how it's trying to convey that text and the message and the word of the gospel. Um, Wow, I covered that in less time than I have in my paper. Good. <laughs> That's the point. I want to get to the music is the thing. But before we get to the music, we really need to talk about L'Orfeo, um, which he wrote in Mantua, 1607. This was the, the opera that he wrote, his first opera. Uh, it was not the first opera ever written, but it was, I would say, the first opera that we would consider to be in sort of modern style in, in what we think of as opera these days. It was the first <coughs> musical drama. And there were a lot of reasons for that. It's firstly, it defied all existing musical convention. And it gave birth to the opera, as I said, as we know it today. And it also employed all those ideals of the seconda practica that we talked about, the sense of free counterpoint to express emotion and text painting, dynamic contrasts in the music and in the orchestrations of the instruments, to, uh, uh, and having dissonance to convey emotion of human spirit. Um, and it was also the first opera that specifically assigned instrument parts. Sometimes it was just sort of like a, a, a pickup group to say, OK, well, we'll just, we've got these instruments on hand, and we're going to play the parts here and, and just sort of divide it up. Um, but he was very specific about which instruments he wanted to play and when in this piece. Um, and it was written just three years before the Vespers. And uh, the, I think a question for Monteverdi was, how could he cr transfer all of these innovations uh, over to the sacred music realm. Uh, and and that, that, that's harder to do than you would think, because remember that we were, we were coming from people hearing the music of Palestrina and hearing all this you know, uh, counterpoint, and beautiful counterpoint, but the text was still servant to the music. And so how, how are we going to do this without um, you know, throwing away the, the rule book, as it were? Um, well, I don't know. He kind of did anyway. Uh, <laughs> and. Um, this, this Vespers that we're about to learn more about, uh, it, it used every convention of the time, recitative, aria, choral, instrumental groupings, both large and small. Now, the Vespers is sort of a colloquial title that the piece has been come to know, be known by. The real name is Vespro della Beata Vergine, the Vespers of the Blessed Virgin. And um, that, that's an, it's an interesting title. We'll come back to it in a, just a bit. Yeah, sorry, guys. Uh, we're just getting to the good stuff now. I know. I'm sorry. I'll do it again. I'll do it again sometime. We'll do, I'll do it again for you. 
this is the good stuff. Um, and uh, it'll also be on the web too, guys, if you want to hear it. I think that, that it's going to be put up. Um, it was published in 1610 along with two settings of a Magnificat, uh, the Song of Mary text, My Soul Doth Magnify the Lord, which we sing at Evensong all the time. And uh, the other more important part um, than even the Magnificats was this mass, uh, the mass in illo tempore. A it was a parody mass after a motet by uh, Nicolas Jambert, and it was written in this sort of older Palestrina style. So in this publication, you had this older style, this mass written in an older style, and then you had this new music of the Vespers, this, this juxtaposition. It's really incredible. But remember, Monteverdi was still trying to figure out how he was going to take the, the innovations of Orfeo and put them into sacred music. So he, he, he had to figure out how to do that as smoothly as possible, even though he did kind of rewrite the book, as I said before. Um, it's, it's a strange thing, too, for Monteverdi, if you think about it. So you know, he wrote a few sacred mu music pieces in the early part of his life. But then he went into se the secular realm, madrigals, then opera. And then, by this point, he was 43 years old. And at 43, the most famous secular composer in Italy at the time starts writing sacred music. It would be as if Bach, in his latest years, started writing operas, which he didn't do. It's, it's the same sort of correlation. It's like, that, that's it's crazy. Why? Why the sudden uh, shift? Well, there are a lot of people, a lot of theories about this. The main theory is that the death of his wife in 1607, shortly after this was uh, writ, uh, I'm sorry, after Orfeo, um, spurred him to to take a, a turn towards the sacred and lift his eyes to God, and uh, become more of a of a godly and uh, and religious man. He also had some debts to pay. He had two sons that he had to worry about educating. He had to think about his job situation. And uh, there were very many practical reasons why he might want to become a sacred musician at this point and, and, and increase his, his options for income. The piece is dedicated to Pope Paul V. And again, like I said, his sons needed education. He was hoping that maybe the Pope would grant them some sort of scholarship at an academy in Rome or something. Sadly, none of that happened. The Pope accepted the dedication happily, but nothing else came of it. So he had to figure out, uh, you know, by his, his own... Um, Merit as a musician to uh, get ahead, as it were. Um, now we're going to talk about whether it's a liturgical piece or not. Um, now the Vespers are part of a divine office or the daily office. We have a daily office too in the Episcopal Church. Um, morning prayer, evening prayer. We just went to morning prayer. Um, in the Catholic Church, it's much more extended than that. Um, and Vespers would be our equivalent of evening prayer. In fact, our evening prayer, even song, when it's sung, is a combination of Vespers and Compline. The main canticle we sing at Vespers, or that Catholics sing at Vespers, is magnific the Magnificat, the Magnificat. And the main canticle at Compline is the Nunc Dimittis. Cranmer combined the two, and there we have evening prayer. So that's why the, at even song, you'll hear the Magnificat and the Nunc Dimittis. Um, but this is the, the general gist of the, it's a prayer service. 
the introduction is this Latin intonation, uh, incantation, Deus auditorium meum intende, which we know as, O oh God, make speed to save us. And then the response is, Domine ad adjuvanda me festina, O Lord, make haste to help us. Then there was a hymn, then followed five psalms, one after the other, with antiphons and uh, doxology. Um, and they were in this order. Now, this is the Vulgate numbering. So for our psalms, this would be 110, 111, 112, 113, 114. Um, uh, and so the, um, you can look those up later. The last one being um, when Israel came out of Egypt, uh, that, that famous psalm. Then there was a short reading, a responsory. Then the Magnificat was sung. And then we had prayers, much like how we end morning prayer and then the Lord's Prayer and the closing prayers. And I don't know if many of you know this, but actually morning prayer ends at the grace, which comes before a lot of stuff still left in the service. But the actual end of the service is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. That's the end of the service. Everything else is just sort of tacked on, um, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But um, that's the gist of the Vespers. Now, we look at Monteverdi's Vespers. It's a lot longer. There's the opening incantation, the response. Then we have one of the, the then we have the Psalms, but look what he's done. Psalm and Nikara Sum. This is the Song of Songs text. I am black but comely, um, O ye daughters of Ju Jerusalem. Then we have another Psalm. Then another text from the Song of Songs. Then uh, another psalm, not the one that was supposed to come next. You can't really see it up here, but I've bolded the ones that are the same. But you can see how much of it is different. Yes, thanks, Gil. I forgot to do that. Thank you. Um, you can see what is the same from the Vespers. One, two, three, four, five things out of 14 things. It's not, it's not all, all the same. So it begs the question, and it's also two hours long. Was this meant to be liturgical? Oh, that's too, that's too early. Um, well, we really don't know. There's, like I said, there's no performance uh, re recorded, first performance recorded. Uh, and the other thing, too, is when we were talking about what the actual title of the piece is, the Vespers of the Blessed Virgin. Well, Vespers by just sheer nature, because the Magnificat is there, the Song of Mary, um, is somewhat Marian, but that doesn't make the prayer service itself Marian. It's just the Song of Mary is there. Um, and in this, in, in the Vespers, I've highlighted the blue. These are the only Marian texts out of all of that. So again, was it liturgical? Was it even Marian? And they're all again. They're all nobody knows the answer to these questions. But there's a lot of um, the, there are a lot of theories about it. Um, one major theory is that the the patron of Monteverdi at the time, his private chapel was the chapel of Santa Barbara, a female saint, and that the use of the Song of Songs um, text Nigrosum Pulcher S would have been appropriate for uh, the feast of any female saint and not necessarily Mary in the Catholic Church. Um, and then another thing, too, was in the Catholic Church, Mary is very popular. And Monteverdi, again, was thinking about making a living. It was more marketable. 
incredible, but there it is. One everlasting feature of this piece, one thing that just permeates it, is that it's entirely based on the psalm tones, the plain song chants that you would have heard out of Vespers. Everything was chanted and chanted to these tones. Now, this is straight from the Catholic Liber Usualis, which is the book that has all the chants for all the um, ordinary and also all the, the, um, the proper, um, ordinary being of the mass and the proper being of the office for every day in the year. And all of these tones have these little formulas. You have this little intonation, da-da-dee. And if you've heard the, the choir sing plain song psalms, you've heard them do this. Or that's a median, that's a, and that's also a, a diversion. And then you have the tenor, the recitation, and then you have the terminations here. So the second half, you've heard this before. This is sort of a, a, a familiar tune uh, if you've listened to Psalms, and you'll hear a lot of them like this in Lent coming up. Um, So with that in mind, I want to talk about how Monteverdi, using all these innovations of instruments, of the psalm tones, applied it, applied this to these sacred texts in the music. Now, how do you introduce a piece like this? This is supposed to be groundbreaking, revolutionary. Well, let's hear it. This is the opening incantation followed by the response. And so on. Does anybody notice anything about anything peculiar about the choir part? Instrumentation is far more interesting. Yeah, than it's the very choir. right. Well, that's exactly <laughs> it. The choir is singing one note, mm -hmm. and the instruments are doing all this fantastic stuff around it. Second thing is, does that sound like church music to you? Like opera. <laughs> it, the music is actually is actually almost a direct quote from the famous Toccata from Orfeo. Um, and he applied it to the psalm tone, because that's how, how it would have been. And the, the incantation in the beginning was this, uh, the same, but then you'd have Domine That's how it would sound. Yes, Victor. What we were listening to, how many choir members and how many instruments? You know, how many uh, 
This is the first recording of John Elliott Gardner. He's got two out there. Um, the I don't know the exact um, numbers, but in terms of orchestra, there there are about. Uh, 20 in the orchestra and the interesting thing about the orchestra is that you know when you if you've ever gone to a Bach uh, Passion or B minor Mass or the Handel Messiah you've got like one little organ or maybe a harpsichord this had two organs and one harpsichord and and all these various instruments um, these um, uh, early instruments called uh, cornets, which are not trumpets they're these long wooden things that sort of preceded the oboe um, period string instruments, so big, big forces. Um, there are some people that would prefer to do things one on a part, but this choir is probably um, several, several people. I'd say maybe between 25 and 30 people is my guess. Now, I want to just play a little bit of the first psalm that you hear. And this is um, psalm tone number four. You can sort of follow the music. That was the first print. And pay attention to this part. We're here right now. Watch how he sets this. It's really neat. So he shifts between So he shifts between the, the sort of churchy plain song and then this very operatic style. I want to get to other parts of it. Now, another feature of this work is he, he takes the psalms, which are written for big forces, what was known as Grand Concerto at the time. And then he took these little concertos for a few voices, one, two, or three, that were just accompanied by a couple of instruments, maybe even just the organ, like in this one. And this is, uh, he used these texts as sort of interpolation. I think much like um, we use the psalm in the liturgy when we have all three readings, we have the first, we have the Old Testament lesson, and then the psalm, which bridges the Old Testament with the New Testament, we make it Christological in that sense, and then the gospel. And I think this was in his in his mind sort of commentary. It's a unique um, period uh, singing device. The ha 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 ha. It's very typical to Monteverdi.
Now, that was just an example of one, um, uh, just a solo. It sounds very operatic and aria-like, really. Now this, the duo seraphim, which comes from a variety of texts, um, Isaiah and also John 1, um, it's a Trinitarian text. I want to read a bit of the translation for you um, really quickly. Two seraphim cried one another, Holy is the Lord God of Sabaoth. The, the whole earth is full of his glory. There are three who bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. Holy is the Lord God of Sabaoth. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what Monteverdi does in this is interesting. He talks about the two, two seraphim in the beginning. So there's two people singing. And I'm going to talk over it in just a minute. One convention of the time was the ability to use the space that you were in musically. So, as you can hear, they sound kind of distant. They were placed in different galleries in the church to use the space. And so you can almost hear the, 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 the two seraphim calling to one another. And hear all the dissonance sort of lamenting, new for the time. Very difficult music, too. Then, oh, I can't fast forward to the next, I'm afraid. Let me see if I can, oops, sorry. Um, I want to, I have to do this so you hear the next example. This is where we have the three come in and the distant echo. So there's one and then two. And then this is the end. Three voices. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Very powerful music. Uh, What's the text there? Holy is the Lord God of Sabaoth. The whole earth is full of his glory. Yeah. They've already talked about the Trinity, and now they're affirming it. Um, Then, sorry. I'm going to skip Nisi Dominus because we're running out of time. I want to talk about, um, just in the remaining minutes that we have, a couple, couple minutes, um, this is interesting how Bonaverde used, you're going to hear the Great Litany next week if you come to the 11 o'clock service, which is derived from the Catholic Litany of the Saints. But uh, Cranmer's innovation on it was that he, rather than having the, the saints intercede, which is a very Catholic uh, theological perspective, is to seek Jesus Christ as our intercessor to the Father. So, but this is um, 
this is a, a unique way that Monteverdi decided to make use of, of that very famous litany and apply all these things to it. Very long introduction. I'm going to skip the Ave Maria Stella, which is the hymn. I want to play the beginning of the Magnificat, or Magnificat. So this is the beginning of the psalm tone. And what he does with three notes. Um, I've sadly run out of time here. I had more examples, and I, I didn't think that the beginning part of it would take so long. But um, I do want to just, uh, I hope that whets your appetite a little bit for what this piece is all about. Um, and it's really, it's, it's really fabulous music. So I really hope you will come out and hear the Georgia Tech Chamber Choir. I'm going to be a part of the performance. I'm playing continual for it. Um, so um, just before we end, I'd like to say just a quick prayer, um, and I'll take any questions in sort of the 20 seconds I have. I'm sorry. I just wanted to get the music in. So let's just pray really quickly. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your prior servant, Claudio Monteverdi, who still speaks through, to us and uh, through the, his wonderful music that he's left in, in your name. And we ask you to uh, bestow upon us your grace and blessing upon this future performance that the people of Birmingham and the people of the Advent could, could be reached spiritually and through your word, through this incredible music. And we ask these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen.